Father, we do worship you. We pray that today would be true worship from our hearts, not just in the way in which we sing, but the way in which we listen to your word and in the way in which we live our lives. We pray that this would be something that is life-changing, that your word would truly change us today. Lord, we cannot change our own hearts, and so we depend upon you to do that by the message of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that your spirit would move among us today and compel us to obedience. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Merry Christmas. It is a wonderful day to open our Bibles and study together. Open your Bibles to John 1, as you know. Uh, Pastor Steve started a little series for us during the Advent season, and that is through the first verses of John's Gospel. John, as you know, is a little bit different than the other Gospel writers. John, for instance, as we're going to see today, John the Apostle gave us just three sentences here about John the Baptist. He offered a few more verses later on, verses 19 to 34. He mentions him again in chapter 3, some in 4 and some in 5, and then a once more, a couple of verses in chapter 10. But the way John the Apostle talks about John the Baptist is, in fact, different than the other gospel writers, the synoptic gospels. The other gospel writers essentially are putting John's life in terms of narrative into the context, whereas John the Apostle is trying to accomplish a couple of other things. For one thing, since he's written this gospel so much later than the other gospel writers, he assumes or presumes that other people, the people who read his gospel, already knew the facts about John's, John the Baptist's life. And so he doesn't feel obligated to sit down and detail for us what happened in the early parts of John the Baptist's life. But the other thing, probably more important thing, is that John is writing not just about the person John the Baptist, but about the doctrine of John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist all about? Why does he exist? What is he here for? What does he do and say? And what are we supposed to understand from this man, John the Baptist? The doctrine of John the Baptist is tied to the fact that he was a herald. To use the words of this text, he was a witness to the light. Of course, the light is... Jesus Christ, who comes to light the world. But I use that word herald on purpose. In the Bible, there is a Greek word that is often translated as herald, but it's also often translated preach. And it's that same word that we think of uh, when we think of that word herald. It is a messenger of the king. The word, if you're interested, is the word caruso, or closely related, the noun kerygma, a herald. It's not limited to simply preaching in a church on a Sunday morning from an elder, an authorized elder. It's anybody who, were, who would aspire to give people a message on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ, the message of Christ. In fact, there's a sense in which, yes, they're the appointed, duly screened preachers, but every one of us, if we are truly followers of Christ, we're all heralds. We're all preachers of the gospel. We're all to take a message that is not our own and give it to others. When you think of that job of a herald or a witness, 
word that's used here, witness, throughout the centuries, you realize a herald, he's not a, a pundit. No one cares about the herald's opinion. He's not a color commentator. He's not there to give his view on stuff. Harold is someone who takes the truth of the king and he repeats it, and if need be, he explains it. Think about what a herald would do all throughout the centuries. A herald would come to the town square and people would gather around and he would make an announcement. Possibly he would open a scroll and he would unscroll that, unravel that scroll and he would read the literal words of the king. And then often he would explain it so the people could understand what it meant for them. That's what a herald is. That's what a witness is. That's what preachers ultimately aspire to do. Preaching is not color commentary. Preaching is not punditry. Preaching is not some sort of opinion-based list of tips and advice. The best preachers and the best witnesses are the ones who try their hardest and use all their expertise to simply reflect and repeat what the king has said. Spurgeon called this letting the lion out. The scripture doesn't need our strength. The scripture has enough power on its own to change hearts. In fact, we can't change hearts, only the scripture can. So the better we can reflect the truth of scripture, the more faithful we are, heralds or witnesses to the truth. Now this is the fundamental reality of John the Baptist. He is a witness He has come to announce the truth, the arrival of the Messiah. He's going to announce what God has said before him about both him and the coming Messiah. And he was to call the people to prepare their hearts for Christ's arrival. Again, if you go back to the idea of Herald, that's often what Heralds would do. They would come to town and they would make an announcement, the king is coming. Prepare your ways. We saw this a few weeks ago when San Francisco cleaned up for their king, Xi Jinping. <laughs> Xi Jinping. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> That's what the people would do. They would prepare the way. They would clean up their mess so that the king could show up. And that's essentially what John was saying. I want you to prepare your hearts for the arrival of Messiah. Be tender. Listen to him. This is who he is. Be ready. Soften your hearts for the arrival of the Messiah. Well, John was this kind of witness. That word witness, incidentally, you probably know this already, many of you anyway, that witness, that that original word in the Greek is the word for martyr. The witnesses in the early church were so faithful that uh, that word for witness just became analogous with being killed for giving that witness. And that's in in fact what John John is doing here. Well, let me read to you John 1. I'm going to read 6, 7, and 8. John gives us three verses. Three sentences, three phrases, and so my sermon will have three points. Verse 6, 7, and 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. John the Baptist. Some of you are surprised to know that Jesus said that the greatest man 
to ever live, aside from himself, of course, the greatest man to ever live was a Baptist by the name of John. <laughs> it's really not my name. My name is Jonathan. And really, it's not John the Baptist. His name was what they really called him was John the Baptizer. Right? That's really what the name is. John, the guy who baptizes people. John is the guy that was marked by that thing. He took a tradition, and it was just sort of a tradition they had at that time. Many Jewish uh, people would do this as they, as they converted to a certain rabbi's teaching. They would, they would commit their hearts to follow with a group, another group of people who followed a certain rabbi. They would do this, and God ordained John to take up that same ritual and make it the marquee uh, entrance into that group of people who followed and listened to his teaching. And so he would go around and he would teach this, he would announce the arrival of the Messiah, he would call them to soften their hearts, to repent, to, to do those things, to ready themselves for the arrival of the Messiah, and to signify their seriousness of this and their, their entrance into that group of people who were following John and his message, they would be baptized. Incidentally, they would, they would be immersed that's why he went to a river, and they would dunk themselves, and they would come up out, and that was a big part of identity. In fact, that, was, uh, uh, that word baptizo means immerse, and they would use it for cloth that would go in as one color into the dye pit and come out another color. And that was sort of the idea, that you would, you would leave aside your old self. You would leave aside the old person who wasn't following after the ways of God and listening to the prophets of God, and then you would, you would re-identify yourself. You would come up out of the water as a new person, washed, uh, the old man washed away, and now you're following the prophet of God, the truth of God. And so John adopted this ceremony, and he became known far and wide as John the Baptizer. Now, you need to know something. Had it not been for the ministry of Jesus that soon followed, not only would John be the most famous Jew and the most famous prophet, he probably would have, would have been one of the most famous people in that part of the world at that time. He gathered thousands of people. And not just in a, the middle of a city or the middle of a town square. He gathered thousands of people who had to walk and travel and go out of town. Even if you lived in Jericho, which was probably the closest city to where John baptized people, he would, people would travel out, and really in a wilderness area, they would travel out to see this man and hear him preach. And many thousands of them listening to him and being baptized by him. What's even more astonishing is as you read the gospel account, what you find out is that John was not some limp-wristed, woke preacher. He preached about repentance. He rebuked people. He rebuked the religious elite. He rebuked even the people who came, the kind people who came to listen to him. He'd tell them, repent. You're sinners. You're going the wrong way. He even rebuked presidents and kings. He rebuked Herod and eventually died for it, right? Herod had married his sister-in-law, and he rebuked him for it. And even though Herod kind of had a liking for John the Baptist, he thought he was an interesting character, his new wife, who used to be a sister-in-law, didn't like it, and she had him in prison, and eventually in a grotesque uh, ball that they had, a gala that they had, she had him killed. 
But John preached this message to the people, soften your hearts, turn from your false religion, receive the truth of the arriving Messiah, prepare your hearts for the arrival of Messiah. John the Baptist issued a strong divine revelation to the people. If you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, you know their preaching was very important, but also that the way that they carried themselves, the way they lived, and of course, John living out as a wilderness man was a message in of itself. We'll get to that in a moment. God gave the people, John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, to point them to Jesus right before Jesus arrived. So today we're going to consider this man, John the Baptist, and look at these three sentences that mark him. Each one of these will tell us about John the Baptist. So let's look at that first sentence, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Number one, the herald's origin. Now, I think we need to pause here and turn back one book to the book of Luke just to remind ourselves, remind our hearts about the origin of John. John had a miraculous origin, and we just need to read about it. Some of you maybe don't know much about John the Baptist or where he started, so I think it's important for us to read about where did John come from and the fact that his origin was amazing. Verse 5 of Luke 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6 of Luke 1. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and you and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. They will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We just read that out of Malachi, remember? Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their, fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them 
and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months she kept herself hidden, saying, The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among Israel. Or from among, among the people, excuse me. Down in 57, she gives birth. Now, it came time for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, there are a couple of incredible things about this story of John's origin. The first one is the most obvious. It says there in verse 7 that both Zachariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years. And this is a little bit euphemistic. They were old people. And they were past the days of bearing children. In other words, 60 or above. Some commentators said probably in their 70s or 80s. Now, I know that 60 is a new 40, but most of you 60-year-old ladies, you don't want any babies anymore. And you know you can't have any babies anymore. So Elizabeth was clearly in that category. She was unable to have Baby, so clearly this is a miracle, and that's the point here. He was not immaculately conceived like Christ was. That wasn't the miracle. The miracle was that nonetheless, a, a super, she was supernaturally allowed to produce an egg and probably allowed to have a body, at least for a, the time being, that she could carry a child. And she did, and she had this baby, and it was amazing, and people were astonished and thrilled. So from the very beginning, people knew about... John, and we're amazed that his mother, who was 70 years older than her firstborn child, even had him. This brings us to another special thing about John from the very beginning. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He'll be great before the Lord. Verse 39, those days Mary rose, went to haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Why did the baby leap in her womb? Well, I purposely skipped over verse 15. He'll be grateful for the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So another miracle occurred. It was a spiritual miracle, and that was John the Baptist was regenerated before he was even born. When John the Baptist was, when all of us are born again, it means we are spiritually born again. When John the Baptist was born again, he was being physically born again because his first birth was a spiritual birth. God raised his dead spirit and regenerated his heart before he even left his mother's womb. God would follow this up. Doesn't mean that John wouldn't have to mature and grow. John, God, all, as he always does when he re regenerates a heart, he would follow this up and John would be repentant and follow after God and live a life of faith. I read a little article this week about this leaping in the womb of John the Baptist when he greeted, when his mother greeted Mary. It's quite possible that Luke is giving us a little evidence of regeneration. Perhaps that was the moment when he sees Christ and recognizes the Messiah. 
Again, his little mind and heart would have to come along and eventually produce faith and repentance. And he would have his doubts. It wasn't he, that he was perfect. He would have his doubts. And we see this even in his ministry. We studied that in Matthew. But we are told uniquely he would be born again before he was even born the first time. Well, this tells us the vital prophetic role that John the Baptist would have. His calling, his job, his ministry, his, his, his efforts were so key, so important that God would regenerate his little heart. He would grow up in a certain way. And I think this probably means that he grew up as a pretty good kid. I wish my kids were born again before they came out of the womb. <laughs> my guess is he was, as someone who was spirit-filled... Someone who had the Holy Spirit, who was indwelled by the Spirit, my guess is he was a better kid than any one of our children. And people probably knew him because of that. They knew that he was a good kid. They knew the story of his mother when, you know, the mom came to pick him up from preschool, Hebrew preschool. You know, she was three times the age of all the other moms. And everyone knew this, this was a miracle. This is a miracle child. And, and look how amazing he is. Look how good he is. And what a great student he is. And how he loves God so much. So again, his reputation is building and building. His demeanor is, is growing, his following Christ. I'm sure he stood out in contrast to all the other children. All that to say, this man, this herald, this witness, from the very start was a man that people trusted, man that people respected, man that people knew and believed. This was a man from God, and his name was John. This man was loved, this man was adored, this man was respected, this man was famous to those who loved the Lord, and he was infamous to those who hated God. They didn't like him. They wanted him dead. John was so influential and so famous that Many years later, when Paul was a thousand miles away on his missionary tour, he stopped in a place called Ephesus, and there was a group of people there, Acts 19, and they followed John, and they believed John, and they believed John so sincerely and so truthfully that as soon as Paul told them the gospel, they immediately believed. And that's the kind of effect that John had. That's the kind of influence that John had. People believed him. People trusted him. People respected him as they listen to his message. Well, this gets us to verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Number two, the herald's purpose. Very simple question. You know your Bible. Who was it? Do you, when you think of a, a man who stood in the wilderness and spoke to the people, who do you think of? You think of Moses, right? That's the first idea you have. Moses. He stood, he spoke on behalf of God to the people. He was a wilderness man. In fact, it wasn't just the, mo the time that he was in the wilderness with the people. He actually, after spending time in the courts of Egypt, he had gone into the wilderness and was out there, and he, he essentially came from out of the wilderness to the people of Israel, right? He was a man who'd met God in the wilderness. He was a wilderness man. Moses, of course, was predated by none other than Abraham. Abraham was a type of nomad, so he too, in that part of the world, would have been a type of wilderness man. Abraham, and Moses. Moses, of course, 
set up this idea that there would be prophets and men who would speak on God's behalf and you ought to test them and there, there are requirements and look to these men, but you don't have to look to anybody who says they speak on behalf of God. Here are the tests. Here's who you ought to listen to. Eventually, there would be another wilderness man by the name of Elijah. We saw this in our reading of Malachi. Again, Elijah with Moses and Abraham viewed as the greatest prophets of all time. Elijah, a wilderness man, he moved in and out of the people of God, but he spent so much time in the wilderness and dressed like a wilderness man and looked like a wilderness man. When Isaiah made that first prophecy, Isaiah chapter 40, about a new Elijah who would come, they knew there would be a man of the wilderness, a man like Moses, a man even like Abraham. This new Elijah would look like the old Elijah, and he would arrive just before the Messiah's arrival. So we learn about John as we hear what he did in his ministry, and we know that he was this wilderness man. He launched and sustained his ministry from the banks of the Jordan River, and you know the Jordan River is not in some beautiful, amazing, lush area. There are lush spots, but most of all, that's a wilderness area. It's very rocky and hilly. If you've traveled to Israel, you know it's very rocky and hilly, especially in that southern part of Israel. And that's where John ministered, the wilderness of Judea. Some of you have a, a map in your Bible in the back of your Bible, one day you're going to look at that and see how it's all brown in that area. That's where John was. He ministered from the wilderness. He looked like a wilderness guy. He ate like a wilderness man. We have wilderness man now, right? Some of you are dressed like them today, but you're not a wilderness man, real wilderness man. I'm not going to mention Jonathan Morse by name, but there's a fellow in our church that looks like he chopped logs on his way to church. There are wilderness men. They look like it. They dress like it. They eat food like wilderness men. And that's what John did. He was a wilderness man. He identified himself with Elijah primarily because that's what the prophecy was. But Elijah was a, in a string of prophets, beginning all the way back with Moses himself. Now, John would minister to the people from the wilderness, and people would travel out of Jerusalem. In fact, Matthew told us that all the people in Jerusalem and all Judea would travel out to listen to John crying in the wilderness. Matthew 3, verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And we know why. He was a miracle. This man was amazing. The fact that he even existed was a miracle. His ministry was shocking. It was amazing. He was calling out everybody. It was a fulfillment, Matthew tells us, of Isaiah 40, Malachi 4 that we read earlier. And John the Baptist, his ministry was similar to Jesus. It was very short. It only lasted a few years. The very earliest, some scholars believe he started his ministry in about 26 B.C. I think it's probably later than that. But if he started in 26 and then his death was in... 28 or 29, it was a very short ministry like Jesus. But in those few years, he became known in all of Israel. Not necessarily as a celebrity, but he was loved and he was followed. His message 
itself sort of eliminates any possibility of him being loved because he was uh, an entertainer or loved because he had such a kind way about him or loved because of any other reason that, than that he gave the truth. And he was unashamed of it. Again, he would preach that message all the way to his death. Herod Antipas, the Herod that would put Jesus on the cross. This is the son of Herod the Great that was at the beginning of Jesus' life. Herod Antipas put him to death at that gala, at that that party. Well, John served this purpose. His ministry, this short ministry, was, you know, one and a half to three years, and the whole nation knew that his message was to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare your hearts. Again, like a herald, make way for the king. Make way for the king. The king is coming. This middle verse really is the centerpiece of what John the Apostle is trying to convey, I believe, He's calling us personally to respond to the message of John the Baptist, which is to look to Christ. Not to look to him, but to look to Christ. It's always amazing to me that things go on in this world, and one of the first things that the news stations do is they, they interview famous sports people or movie stars as if they have any knowledge of Israel and Palestine. But they want their view on it. They want to know what they have to say. John was not not that kind of celebrity. John was the kind of guy who told you to soften your heart. And John was the kind of guy who would say, I don't care what's happening in the politics or the wars of the world. What I care about is that you get your heart right by looking to Christ past me. Don't look to me. Look to Christ. That was John's message. Called people to look to the light of the world. John drew attention not to himself or his opinions or his views, but to the person and work of Christ. Look down in verse 19. We're back in John 1. Look down in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? It's possible they were referring to some other prophet, perhaps Moses himself. The prophet? He answered, No. It's interesting, just one word, No. They said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John's whole purpose in life was humility. To, to bow out and point others to someone else. This is what validated him as a true prophet of God. The fact that he pointed others to Christ. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. That's why John would say later here in the book of John, I must decrease, he must increase. Again, the fruit of John's ministry was not ultimately his own disciples. The fruit was what we see in Acts chapter 19. Other people following Christ. He only gathered disciples insofar as he would point them to Christ. John the Baptist, the herald, stands for us then as a really an example for all of us who are believers, someone who points others to the Messiah. Of course, it begins with that question, have I dealt with the Messiah myself? Do I just deal with Christianity and the claims of the Bible in sort of a second-person sense, or have I actually personally dealt with the person of Jesus Christ? That's what John would say to us today. And I think that's what John the Apostle is getting at by reminding us of John the Baptist's ministry to point us to Christ, the light. John the Baptist, the greatest man to ever live outside of Christ, a man who was respected above all, all others, miraculously conceived, regenerated from the womb, respected by all the people of the world at that time in that area, that his whole purpose is to deflect any praise away from himself and point people to Christ. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Number three, the herald's example. Ultimately, the application, or I guess finally the application takes us to John the Baptist as an example for all of us. He's the epitome of what John the Apostle wants his readers to become, believers, followers of Christ, repentant, and over everything, Christ-honoring. This whole passage, really, in, in, the, in the book of John is to call us to follow Christ, to humble ourselves, to, to believe in this light, to love Him, to worship Him, to honor Him for who He really is, God of gods, who's come in flesh. To glorify Christ, that's our job. John gives to us, offers for us the perfect example or a near-perfect example. John the Baptist is not some autonomous Christian celebrity. His whole life was anchored in trying to point people to Jesus Christ. I'm going to finish with this. There was a, a fellow in Germany in the late 14th and early 15th century named Thomas Hemmerken. He was known best as Thomas from Kempen or Thomas Akempis. Thomas studied in his early Christian walk. He studied with some people from Holland or up near Holland who were very humble people and who they focused on living a life that was humble and simple and 
living a life that was all to glorify Christ, to live and dress and speak and act in a way that would only cause people to glorify Christ, to not look to uh, their meaning in terms of accomplishments or money or pride. They became known as sort of a humble people. And he learned from this group of people, and it was so massively impactful to him. And he came back, he decided to be a pastor, and he, he began to, to minister at a church in a simple way with a simple proclamation very similar to John the Baptist. In that vein, he wrote a book, some of you have heard of it, The Imitation of Christ. Chapter 7, he says, If you seek Jesus in all things, you will surely find him. Likewise, if you seek yourself, you will find yourself to your own ruin. For the man who does not seek Jesus does himself much greater harm than the whole world and all his enemies could ever do. What's interesting about this book, The Imitation of Christ, is that Thomas Akempis wrote it anonymously. And he faded into history until people began to discover this book and read it and sort of figure out and redact who actually wrote this. And that book became and still is for a number of Christians one of the most meaningful devotionals. Let's live and behave like this, like John the Baptist. We live a life that point people to Christ and beginning with the idea of believing in Christ and loving Christ and worshiping Him. Pray with me now. Father, we thank You so much for today. We pray that You'd bless us, especially as we come to a time of the Lord's table. Bless us as we seek to honor You and love You, as we seek to remember You, and as as we seek to experience this moment we have together in communion with You and with one another, this unifying moment of communion and worship. We pray that you'll bring us closer together and closer to yourself. Lord, our whole lives, we live to honor you and to worship you and to love you. Help us do this, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.